Matthew 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither soar nor weep, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And you, are you not of more value than they? And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly fathers know that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. All right, thanks, Lucas. Good to be back. Our family's back from vacation, feeling refreshed, rested, ready to go. Uh, I do have a bunch of quick updates to give you before we come to the message, and probably I should just start by talking about what every one of you are commenting to each other about right now. I got a little bit extra facial hair going on. First time you've ever seen me growing a little bit of a beard. I was just considering the manliness factor of myself compared to the other staff, and I thought I needed to up my game because, you know, you got Steve with his little blonde goatee. He's got like 50% manliness factor. Oh, then you got Josh, he's like 75%, and Lucas, like 120. Like, he's full man, and so I just thought maybe I need to up my game a little bit, but uh, we'll grow it for a little while until my wife says, uh, you know, that's enough, or I just get sick of it myself. Uh, hey, on more of a serious note, fun note though, uh, this Sunday actually marks my five-year anniversary here, uh, so that's fun for us as a family, but I was reflecting on this during my holidays, and it's always a good time to think about your life and where you're at, and, and I just want you to know, again, Central Family, I consider it a great privilege, a great joy to serve as your lead pastor. And over those holidays too, just thinking again, I want to just be more faithful. I want to give myself more to the work here at Central and to, Lord willing, be more effective in the next years to come, uh, even more so than the years previous. So it's a great joy to be here at least five years. Lord willing, we'll just keep this going uh, as, long, as long as the Lord wills it. Uh, but that's our five-year anniversary. Next thing to talk about, while I was away on holidays, we voted on the Ask Anything series. If you're just joining our live stream today, uh, here's what's happened. We put out a questionnaire to anybody in our church, anybody out on the internet who follows us, wants to submit a question on what would you want to hear a sermon about. So our entire fall sermon series is based entirely on the questions that you ask. We took all those questions in. We boiled them down to the 13 most popular questions that came in. Then we put it back to you to vote on. So 13 questions were put out there. We said we'll do a sermon series of nine questions. You voted. All those results came in. They are now in, and we have our sermons ready now for fall. As I looked at it, there were supposed to be nine. There were so many good ones and so many votes that you gave. I thought, we'll give you a bonus too. So... 
out of the 13. We're actually going to preach on 11 of them. The, uh, all of them made it except for the 11. The two that did not make it were, first of all, the question about humility. What is humility and how we can grow in it? Apparently, you all think you're very humble and you have no need to grow in humility. So I guess we don't need to do a sermon on that. And uh, the other one was on uh, how can I know if I'm saved? How can I become a Christian? We'll cover that one in all kinds of other sermons. So uh, we will release on our website on Tuesday the exact order, the dates, so you can see what the questions are and the dates are going to be preached on. You can tell your friends about it, but make sure you tune in starting September 13, and we begin the Ask Anything series. Another very important update for you, you've probably seen this in the board report, but I just want to make sure we're communicating and make sure you're all on page. Uh, about a month and a half, two months ago, we created what we called a reopening team. We are looking at how we could reopen Central Baptist in fall. What would that look like? Uh, how, uh, i got to be honest. The government has so many regulations. This is not a simple thing at all. It will require us a tremendous amount of work. And so our team is working on all the many facets of this and what this could look like. We hope to have a, uh, an idea of what we can talk to you about in the next few weeks. Uh, but you can, be pre- pre- you can be praying for this reopening team uh, as we begin to discuss how we could do this starting hopefully in September, but we'll see. Can't promise anything yet. Again, just my own personal uh, word to uh, the Willock family, the Arnott family. Uh, when I was away on holidays, both these men passed away. I was able to be in touch uh, with their families as well. And my heart just goes out uh, to each of the family prayers. We love you guys. Your husbands were both incredible men. Uh, they will be very much missed. And we love you as the families. And I was also just reflecting on all the other things. Just the little time I was away on holidays. I mean, you have these two men pass away. But at the same time, Josh and Leanne Kazakoff had a baby boy. Uh, we baptized a handful of teenagers. We had a 60th wedding anniversary. We got numerous young families wanting to join our church. More interest in baptism. This just thrilled my heart. This is what it means to be a family. We've got all these facets from older people to younger people, births to deaths, uh, baptisms, all these wonderful things that are happening. This is what it means to live as a family within Christ's church. So those are a few of the updates. One other thing to say, you're going to want to stay tuned after the sermon at the very end of the service. I have two very important staffing updates to give you. I want to do it at the end uh, so you can anticipate that's coming. So don't go clicking off the service. Uh, Once I'm done or the music's done, stick right through to the end and I'll make sure uh, to give you those announcements. All right. Now that I've got all the preliminaries away and you've gotten used to my new look, you're not, you know, snickering about it anymore. Uh, I think it's time for us now to open up God's Word and come to Matthew chapter 6. So take out your Bibles. And, and as has been mentioned, we're going to begin now a new three-part sermon series, uh, which I'm simply entitling Overcoming Anxiety because that is precisely what this passage is about. <clears throat> The CBC actually put out a a great and extensive documentary, which they called The Age of Anxiety. And they're talking about how in our modern world, anxiety has increased, along with all our technological advances of the modern world, actually anxiety has also increased. And they make the distinction between clinical anxiety disorders and the everyday anxieties that we all face. And here is how the documentary begins. Anxiety. It's being called the disease of the 21st century. Everybody is either afflicted or knows someone who is. According to the World Health Organization, disorders related to dread or anxiety are the most prevalent mental illness. Mark that. The most prevalent mental illness has to do with anxieties and worries and this kind of things on the globe at the moment. Some of us, let me get a little humorous here, some of us shriek at spiders. Others have panic attacks that flare up out of nowhere and mimic the symptoms of heart failure. Still others worry excessively about everything and nothing. Violent crime, cancer, black bears, tornadoes. And here is the big line at the end which they're asking the question. Fear is a condition in search of a cause. Where does all this fear and anxiety come from is what they're talking about in that quote and want to go on and talk about in the documentary. 
In our modern age, despite all of our technological advances, despite globalization and all these things that have happened, a side effect, maybe unintended of it all, is anxiety has also risen. The younger you are, the more they say that people struggle with anxiety and with worry. And of course, we know this right now during COVID-19. I mean, right now, anxiety just blankets our entire culture. It blankets almost everything that we do. There's just a general anxiety through absolutely every single part of our culture. And then there's all the anxieties that we've always struggled with and are still facing amidst COVID. And those would be just all the normal things, like when you lay awake at night and you cannot sleep because you're filled with anxiety about something to do with your future. It's a sickness, as they're saying here. It's the disease of the 21st century. So we all know what it means to, metaphorically speaking, kind of burn with fever over a relationship that has been going bad and we're we're just caught up in it and it's burning us up and we're always thinking about it, we're always anxious about it. We know what it means to have a, 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 an upset stomach, if you want to put it that way. Just feeling ill about where our future is going, about what's happening at our workplace, what's happening uh, maybe with our adult children. All of these struggles with our finances, with our investments, we all know what it means to live in the 21st century and to struggle with anxiety. This sickness of the 21st century, as the CBC calls it. Like all sick people, what we want most is to be healthy. And that is where the good news of Matthew chapter 6 comes in. Matthew 6 is Jesus' great sermon on the mount where he talks about life in the kingdom. Through Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God has invaded this world. God's kingdom has come in Jesus Christ. And all who give their lives to Christ become part of this kingdom. And God is all about bringing his kingship into our lives. And his kingship means making us healthy again. When Christ is your king, he is on a mission to rid you of all the sicknesses, so to speak, metaphorically and eventually physically as well, and to make you whole again. That is what Jesus is about. That is what his sermon is about. And in this particular passage that we want to look at today in the next two weeks, he wants to bring us the health that is a life that is not filled with anxiety. He wants to cure us of the sickness of anxiety. Now, this should be really obvious. I mean, if you have your Bible, just look down right there in verse 25. It's clear this is the main point of the passage when he says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What a good master Jesus is. What a good king. What Jesus wants for his kingdom's citizens is that they would be freed from anxiety. That's what his kingdom is partly about, is being freed from anxiety. What a good king we serve. That is what Jesus is zeroing in here. And you can see it in verse 25 at the heart of the passage. But notice that little word, therefore, at the beginning of verse 25. That word, therefore, connects what Jesus said previously in verses 19 to 24 when he talks about treasures, vision, and masters. It connects that with the passage about anxiety. So, even though it's not immediately obvious to you, verses 19 to 24 that we're going to look at today have everything to do with anxiety. They're all about anxiety. In verse 25, Jesus is saying to us, the anxiety he's about to talk about in 25 to 34, he's saying, if you want to really understand it, you've got to go back to 19 to 24, and there you will discover the, the root causes. There you will discover where anxiety comes from. If I could put it this way, think about a fever. A fever is a symptom that you are sick. It's not, it's not actually the sickness. It's a symptom that you are sick. There's something wrong within you, and so your body uh, begins to develop a fever in order to fight it. Jesus is saying here in this passage, verses 19 to 24 are the real sickness inside. Anxiety is the symptom in your life. It's the symptom that there's something wrong underneath. You're making unwise decisions, Jesus is saying, And he's going to go through that in verses 19 to 24. So 19 to 24 then are at the heart of it before he talks about anxiety. It's the root cause underneath anxiety. Just as an aside, Jesus is not really speaking here about what we might call clinical anxiety where people face uh, tremendous anxiety because, say, of past trauma related to things like abuse. This may be helpful for that. 
But Jesus is not saying you can't be, you can be anxiety-free because of trauma you face. He's more talking about everyday anxieties that we all face. So, here's how I want to develop this passage. When I was in seminary, I had a great professor named Daryl Johnson, and I really liked how he kind of outlines this. I think it follows the text faithfully, and I'm going to follow it as well. Here in this passage, Jesus is teaching us three basic laws of the human heart. In other words, three things about the way that you and I are wired. This is who you are as a human being. He teaches us the three laws. He then shows us there's three consequences that result from these three laws, and then that results in three decisions that we need to make. Three laws, three consequences, three decisions. So let me give you the main point of what Jesus is getting at, and then we'll develop these. Here's the main point of this passage. Since anxiety comes from making unwise choices about three basic laws of human nature, we must make wise, kingdom-informed decisions. That's his big point. Now he's going to develop it with the three laws, three consequences, and three decisions. So if you want to learn how to be free of anxiety, which I think we all do, let's really dig into this text and listen carefully to Jesus, who is our good and loving master. Let's begin. Here's law number one. Every human being is an investor seeking security for the future. Basic law of human nature. Every single one of us, we are all investors. We are all investing in something where we are seeking security for our future. Whatever we can invest into it, we're hoping it will make us secure and build us a good future. So look with me at verses 19 and 20 where Jesus makes a negative statement and then a positive one. Verses 19 and 20 read like this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now, notice, let's dig right into this passage. I want you to really pay attention here. Notice Jesus assumes that every single one of us are storing up treasures. We all do this, Jesus is assuming, And notice, Jesus is not against you storing up treasures. That's not what this passage is about. He's not against you doing this. To the contrary, in verse 20, he actually commands you to lay up treasures for yourselves. Now, what's the treasures he's referring to? Well, negatively, he, in the first part, he's definitely speaking about things like money, possessions, material wealth. But it's more than that. Treasures, the things, the treasures that you have in your life could be anything that you're investing in, you're giving all of your time to, that you're pursuing with all of your might. So look carefully at the text now and notice that Jesus isn't, his concern is not to rebuke us for our desire to store up treasures. That's not his concern. His his concern is not to do that. No, he calls us to store up treasures, but mark this, his concern is not that we are too selfish but rather that we are too foolish. His concern is not that we are too selfish in storing up treasures. His concern is that we are too foolish in the way that we go about it. He's saying we foolishly invest so much in treasures on earth, thinking if we get these kind of things, then we'll be secure. But in reality, all the treasures on this earth will be taken taken from us. They're all impermanent. They will all eventually disappear. This is foolish to invest in, Jesus says, because you could be investing in heavenly treasures which are eternally secure. So that's the first law, the law of your heart and of my heart, that we are all investors. We are all seeking security, and we all want security for our future. We do this by storing up treasures. So that's law number one. Jesus is teaching you about your heart. He wants you to understand yourself. Now there's a consequence that follows from this law. Here's the consequence. Our hearts will always follow our treasures. Our hearts always follow our treasures. So look with me now at verse 21 where Jesus says this, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So he says, don't seek to store up treasures on earth because Jesus is saying, if you do that, then your heart is always going to go to your treasures. Those things that you really love, they're always going to become attached there. And since those things are profoundly insecure, here's what's going to happen to you. You're going to be filled with anxiety. 
You're always going to be worrying. You're not going to feel stable. You're going to have all this. You're going to be fretting. You're going to be worrying because your heart is attaching itself to a treasure which, if it's earthly, is always going to be insecure. And so you're going to, your anxiety is going to rise and rise and rise the more you invest in treasures in this world. And that's so true, isn't it? I mean, just think about all of your wealth. Think about wealth in general. The Bible says that we are to work hard. Money is not an evil thing at all. The, the love of money is evil. Money's not evil. We're to work hard. We're to earn money. We're to provide for our families. We are to plan into the future. And as we saw in the Ecclesiastes series, we are to enjoy God's good creation with the wealth that he has given us. But here's the distinguishing point. If financial security is the thing that is always in your mind. You're always pursuing that. It's the thing that drives you. It's the thing you're always pondering on. Then what Jesus is saying to you here is that you will live in a perpetual state of anxiety. Because if you're always tracking your investments, your heart is going to be on the roller coaster wherever the market goes. If the market's going up, you're going to feel great. When the market goes down, you're going to go down. And if the economy collapses, you will collapse because you have put your heart, your treasure into your financial situation. And so if everything collapses, you collapse. You can see this even with vehicles. The nicer the vehicle you drive, the more you're going to have anxiety about a scratch coming onto it. Uh, somebody, maybe somebody in your family backs it up and bumps the bumper I don't know who does that in my family, but it gets scratches on it and things like that. You're going to worry more and more about it. You're always going to have anxiety. The more you store up treasures on earth, you know, if you had a Ferrari, you'd park that thing with six parking spots on either side. You'd be so afraid to drive it, and your anxiety is going to raise. Now, I don't really have that problem, but I always got to look at my own life and say, am I valuing possessions? Am I valuing financial security too much? Where is my heart? Is my heart focused in on all of these treasures? Because Jesus is a good master. Jesus wants you to experience freedom. He wants you to know freedom from anxiety. And if you invest in heavenly treasures, and what would be some of those things? Well, it would be like people. You're investing in people. You're investing in gospel causes. You're investing in your church where Jesus is building his church, which will last for eternity. You're investing in the poor, which Jesus said calls us to do. You're investing in world missions. You're investing in uh, helping orphans or whatever it is that you want to do, however you can do it with your life. If it's something eternal, you never have to worry about it being taken away. You'll never have anxiety because no one can, this world cannot touch it. It's secure for you already in heaven. And so then your anxiety level can go down. So it's a question of where, where are you investing? Where is your heart going to go? Wherever it goes, that's where your anxiety will also go. So the law is we're all investors. The consequence is our hearts always follow our treasures. And now this forces us to make a decision. And the decision is very simple. Here it is. Will we invest in treasures on earth or treasures in heaven? And notice that Jesus wants to emphasize how insecure the treasures of this earth really are. Notice he says three things that destroy our earthly treasures. Rust, moths, and thieves. Look at verses 19 and 20 again. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now rust... Uh, rust represents the decay of time. Eventually, time is going to rust absolutely everything. Time will take everything from us. Moths represent nature's decay. I mean, just think of our houses here on the West Coast with how wet it is. That house that you have that's so nice over time, over the decades, all that moisture and time, it's just going to slowly decay. It's going to need renovations. And thieves, of course, represent how humanity can destroy all of our earthly treasures. They can literally break in and steal. The market can crash. You can lose your job. You can get fired. All of these kind of things can happen to us. And so in order to free us from anxiety and to allow us to live healthy lives free of this sickness we've been talking about, Jesus is saying, pour your life into investments that last, things that are eternally secure. So look at your life and ask this question. Could it be that you are anxious because you are investing in things that are profoundly insecure? Track your anxiety. 
Is it because something is so insecure? Is that something that you should be investing in? What practical ways can you start investing in things that are more eternal? How can you shift the bulk of your life? So it's, I'm investing in things that are eternal. Of course you have to have a house. Of course you have to have it drive a car or things like that if your job requires it. All those things are important. But where is your life focused? Things that are of earth or things that are of heaven? That's law number one, consequence one, and decision one. Let's move to the second one. This will be a little bit shorter. Here's law number two we can learn about ourselves. That every human being operates with a vision of reality. Every single one of us. Again, remember Jesus just teaching us about ourselves. He's really stating the obvious to us that we all operate with a vision of reality. So look at verse 21 where he says these words. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. This is what Jesus is talking about, is the eye. It's this image of vision. But he says, if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now we all know the eye is what we see the world with. Jesus is making a point here. We all look at reality in a certain way. If we want to use a modern term, you could say, we all see the world through glasses. Glasses that are, are tinted with our experiences, with our belief systems, all of these types of thinking. This is a law that is true for all people. We all have a vision of reality. But once again, there's a consequence that follows from the way that we are wired. And here it is, consequence number two. Our vision of reality affects our whole lives. How you view the world affects all your choices and everything that you're doing. Again, this is super obvious, but Jesus is teaching us how we are wired. I mean, it's literally true that what you look at and bring into your eye can affect you. That's true, but Jesus is speaking more metaphorically here. He's saying, whatever you focus your attention on, what you devote yourself to, it's either going to fill your soul, your heart with light, or it's going to fill your soul with darkness. So to have good eyes means to focus to give your attention to things that are good and true and noble and right and to bring those into your life, to give focus to them. And then the opposite, bad eyes, would be to fill your life with things that are darkness. And if you focus on things that are of darkness, the darkness will begin to invade your own soul and it will take over your soul so that Jesus ends with how great is that darkness. So Jesus is teaching us here that what you focus on will determine everything else about you. Listen carefully to this. You will become like that which you focus on. You will become like that which you focus on. Whatever you focus and give your attention to, it, it, you, you, there's nothing that's neutral. It's going to shape you. It's going to either bring light or darkness into your life, and you are going to become like it. So then this, of course, presses us to make a decision. And here's the obvious decision we got to make. Where will we focus our attention? On things that are of light or things that are of darkness? Whatever your treasure is, that treasure is going to be where your focus goes. It's always going to pull you toward it. And Jesus is saying that treasure is always going to fill you with something, either light or darkness. That's why Paul writes these words in Colossians chapter 3. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. Kind of echoing Jesus. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. He's not saying you can't focus, like live your life on earth. No, he's not saying be so heavenly minded you're of no earthly good. That's not the point. What he's saying is what, what is the main thing in your life? What is the vision through which you see reality? Is it the existence of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ and living for him and seeking first his kingdom? Is that the grid through which you see reality and focus on? Or are you focused entirely just on your own little investments, your own treasures, your own pleasures, your own comforts? Which is it? Jesus is forcing us to make a decision here. And he's forcing it for our good. Because we all know that darkness makes us feel insecure. And insecurity makes us filled with anxiety. I was driving with my daughter Emmy the other day up through uh, the highlands and uh, lots of forests there. And we were just talking about how much we love trees and forests. And then she just kind of added, except for I don't really love them at night. 
And I said, I fully agree. I don't know that anyone really loves a forest at night. If you're in the darkness in a forest at night and you can't see anything, your immediate sense is one of insecurity. And that insecurity manifests itself in what? Anxiety and fear. Again, what Jesus is saying to us, we've been given new life. We do not want darkness within us. Darkness creates insecurity. Insecurity creates anxiety. Jesus, as our good master, wants to bring us into the freedom of walking in the light. So the decision is, what is your life focused on? Do you fill it with God's word? Do you focus in on what it means to live for him in your job, in your situation? Are you always thinking through, how can I serve Jesus? What does it mean to be faithful to Jesus in my role, whatever that is? How am I living for his kingdom values? How am I investing my life for him? Am I praying to him regularly? Am I in his word regularly? That's all what it means to focus, to fill your eyes with light. That's the first two laws. One more to go, and this one brings it all together. Law number three is this, that every human serves some sort of God. I probably should have put a a slash here with a capital G God because it could be either. It could be the little G God, which we'll talk about, or it could be God himself. But Jesus is just again showing us our hearts. He's saying, guys, we're all investors. Uh, We all have a vision of reality. And now the third law is simply this. Guys, we all, Jesus is saying, every single human being, we all serve some sort of God. So look with me at verse 24. Jesus makes it clear when he says, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Every human being serves some sort of God. Even if you are an atheist, you serve some sort of God. Your God is whatever you give your life to, all of your time, your money, your, your, your emotional strength. Whatever that thing is, it becomes your functional God. You cannot be human and not serve something, give yourself to something. We as humans are always giving ourselves to some sort of God. Aside from Jesus himself, who's the greatest preacher of all time. The second greatest preacher on this passage is the great preacher named Bob Dylan. And I've quoted this one to you before some years ago, but let's do this again because Bob Dylan's greatest sermon on this is his song, Everybody uh, Gotta Serve Somebody, where he says this, you may be an ambassador to England or France, you may like to gamble, you might like to dance, you may be the heavyweight champion of the world, you may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Dylan is just simply echoing Jesus' words. To be human is to give yourself to serve some sort of a God. Your God is whatever you serve, cherish, live for. That's a basic law of what it means to be human. Again, that law also comes with a consequence. And here is the final consequence, that we can only serve one God at a time. Again, probably should have a slash here with a capital G. You can only serve one God at a time. Now, again, I want you to pay close attention to this text. Note, this brings out the power of it. Notice very carefully, Jesus isn't saying that it is not wise to serve two masters. This is not a question of wisdom. He's not saying, if you are wise, you would serve God alone and not other gods. That's that's not really his main point. He also isn't saying that you shouldn't serve two masters. That's not his main point. Notice what's his main point. It's not that you'd be unwise. It's not that you shouldn't do it. Rather, he's saying, you cannot do it. That's his point. You cannot serve two masters. That's his main point. It's impossible. In our modern culture, I suppose it would be possible. Most of us can't do this. Uh, but in the central, we have policies about this. But you cannot serve two employers at once. In our culture, it would be possible. Yes, there are certain jobs where you serve two employers. But if you're full-time, very difficult. Jesus' point is not that it's very difficult to serve two masters. Jesus' point is more of the slave-master metaphor. A slave is wholly dedicated to a master. Totally, all of life, everything. You cannot serve two masters. You can only have one master, is what Jesus' point is. And the two masters that he potentially mentions here 
are at the end of verse 24, where he simply says, you cannot serve God and money. Those are your two potential masters. Now, this word money, that's a great translation. I'll tell you why they do that. The word there is simply mammon. You've probably heard that word uh, before. Some translations will leave it untranslated. And here's the reason. Mammon most often is money, but it doesn't have to be money. Mammon is simply whatever you put your whole confidence in. That's what mammon is, what you put your confidence in. And so because through the history of the world and by human nature, we most often put our confidence and our security in, in, our, in our financial status and making sure that we're covering all our, our wealth, uh, all, the, all the basis of our wealth and things, mammon became synonymous with money, but it can mean more than just money. It's whatever we said earlier, whatever your true treasure is, where you put your confidence in, whatever that is, that is your mammon. So if, for instance, you build your identity on your physical appearance, that's where you get your confidence and your identity, that could be your mammon. Maybe maybe it's career success. You want to be viewed as successful. You want to be respected. If that is the thing that you live for, your treasure, that is your mammon. It could even be something like your family. If you invest, if you, if you with your kids, you said, I want to find all my love in my children, and that's where you're trying to find all your love and your identity is completely wrapped up in being a father or a mother or something like that or even being married, that could be also your mammon. So notice, mammon doesn't have to be anything evil. In fact, mammon is usually something good. It's always something good that just gets raised up to too high of a place. As we said before, it's like when a good thing becomes a God thing. And anything that is good can become a God. Any treasure can be a good treasure that we're supposed to enjoy, but if it becomes the ultimate treasure, the ultimate allegiance in your life, then it has become what we call an idol or a a different master or a different God. That's all these terms are referring to the same thing. So what Jesus is showing us here is that we all have an ultimate allegiance to something. We all have an ultimate allegiance to something in our lives. Mammon is whatever you give your ultimate allegiance to. So there can only be one God on the throne of the human heart. That's the key. Only one God on the throne of the human heart. Jesus is saying to you, the reason why you get so anxious is because you've put a God other than Jesus Christ onto the throne of your heart. Why does that produce anxiety? Just think that through for your life right now. It produces anxiety because any other God but the true God is profoundly insecure. You set, you set up a false God, whatever that God is, it's gonna fall over, it's gonna topple, it's gonna crash. And every one of us, you know it, I know it. We know that the false gods are insecure. And so that's why we have so much anxiety. We're like, we're afraid they're gonna fall over. We're investing so much in them. We're giving so much, but we know they're insecure. And so we're anxious. Oh, don't topple over. Oh, quick, prop it up, prop it up, hold it up. That's why we get so anxious. So much fear comes up in us, so much anxiety, and it begins to consume us. So again, Jesus is showing us in our hearts, this is the root cause of our anxiety. How do we know what our idols are? Let's spend a few moments just talking about it. This is where my professor, Daryl Johnson, is so helpful on this. Uh, He gives us five questions to ask ourselves, five questions to discern what your idols are. And I'd encourage you to take these questions after the sermon and to just go and ponder them in your devotional life this week. Here's the first one. Ask yourself, what gives me a sense of security? What is it that gives you a sense of security? In this turbulent world of COVID-19, what is it that you find yourself looking to, to protect you, to make you feel stable? Much of that can be good, but if, if you've got lots of anxiety around all these things in your life, you might be putting something up too high. Anything other than Jesus as the ultimate thing to trust in, to, to find your, your security in, it's a false God and it's just going to topple and fall off. It's not secure. Second question would be this. Ask yourself, what is my greatest delight? I find this one very helpful for myself. Ask yourself, what brings me my greatest joy? What am I always talking about? Or or look at your finances. What will you spend money on without a second thought? You'll You'll pour money into something. What is your greatest delight? 
There you might find just a good gift of God, which you're enjoying and rightfully enjoying, or you may find something that has been elevated too high, and you can tell if you've got a lot of anxiety around it. If there's all kinds of anxiety around protecting it, then maybe it has been elevated too high. Ask yourself, what is my greatest delight? Anything other than Jesus Christ, God as your ultimate delight, is a false God and will eventually topple off the throne and will produce anxiety for you. Question number three to ask yourself. This is a good one too. What do I fear? If you can trace your fears to their bottom, there you will find false gods in your life. Think about many ancient peoples. They would create gods out of their fears. So maybe it's just even a volcano. They create a god of fire and lava, and then they begin to bring sacrifices to the god because they know this god is volatile. This god uh, is, not, is a god that needs to be appeased, and so we're always living in anxiety and fear. Our fears often reveal who our true God is. Because, of course, the good news of the gospel is if God the Father, through Jesus Christ, is your God, he's perfectly secure. In the end of the day, you have nothing to fear, for death has been beaten, and you have a great hope in the future if you belong to Christ. But if anything else has been put up there, you know in the heart of hearts that it's not going to last. And that's why there's so much fear there, because it's impermanent, and it can topple. Question number four. Ask yourself, where do I resist the Word of God? What themes of the Bible do you, like, do you avoid? What, whatever you resist is probably a potential God because you're not willing to give it up like the rich man when Jesus spoke to him and he refused to give up his wealth to follow Jesus. And here's the big one, the final one. This one cuts right to the heart. Ask yourself this, what is it that if God took it away, I would walk away. Ask yourself, what is it in your life that if God took it away, you would say to God, I want nothing to do with you? Oh, that one pierces right down, doesn't it? What would you say, you know, for instance, you say, God, I believe in you, but if you don't keep me financially comfortable, then our relationship is negotiable. If, if that's how you feel about your, your wealth and your finances, then that's probably become a God in your life. If, if you say, for instance, God, I will believe in you and follow you as long as you allow me to get married and have a family one day, and if you don't allow that, then our relationship is negotiable. If that's true, then marriage and family has actually a good thing, as good as that, has become the functional God of your life. It's no longer the supreme God who wants to bring you freedom. Now you've got anxiety around that, or even could be your own health. Or parents, let's just be honest, sometimes we've got to be careful. We are supposed to love our kids and we love them with all our hearts. But this one really gets down where I have to surrender my own family. I love them so much, but I've got to surrender them and say, God, my family is not even the God that I serve as great as they are. Because if I say, God, I will believe in you and I will follow you as long as you keep my family safe, and if you don't, God, then our relationship's negotiable. If my heart is saying that, then there's something wrong with my heart and my kids and my wife. They've become the God that I'm actually serving, not the true God of heaven and earth. Now, of course, if God took our families away, we grieve. Grief is a normal thing in a fallen world. But if we're willing to turn our backs on God, we realize that family has become something too high. We have to surrender our families before the true God who alone is the true God. I'd encourage you to take those five questions, pray them through, ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart and to reveal to you maybe where there is a God that you are serving who is not the true God, a God who is impermanent, unstable, and produces anxiety and fear. So that then leaves us with the last question, doesn't it? And here's the decision number three that we got to come to, and it's simply this, what God will we serve? Again, we probably should have a little slash with a little G. You're going to serve the gods of this world, or are you going to serve the true God of heaven and earth? And as Jesus says, you can only serve one master. Who will it be in your life? Who will it be? Once again, put all this together. Jesus is a good and a loving king. What he wants for you is freedom. 
And in this passage, he wants to free you from anxiety. And notice the connection between treasure, vision, and masters. They flow after each other, don't they? Jesus has taught us that whatever you invest yourself in, the treasures you invest yourself in, that is going to give birth uh, to a vision of reality. Whatever you focus on, you're going to become like that. And then whatever you focus on, that is going to give birth to a God that you will worship. And if that God is not the Lord of heaven and earth, that God will ultimately fail you. So the treasures produce a focus. The focus produces a God. And the God, if it's not the true God, produces tremendous anxiety. So the reason why we often get so anxious, so fearful, is that we've been making unwise decisions and commitments with the treasures and the vision and the masters of our lives. So forces those decisions in our lives. Let me just wrap all this up by giving just two concrete examples and try to make this really practical for us. I've already alluded to a couple, but let's just quickly develop them. Let's think about parenting and career success. First of all, parenting. Children are a good gift from God. Their children are to be loved. Children are to be cherished. Parents, of course, we are to devote ourselves to raising our children. But you know what? Children can also become those gods for us. And here's, you've seen this so many times, and you've seen the disastrous effects that this has, maybe in other people. It's easier to see it in others than yourself, isn't it? Here's the example. You see a parent who begins to try to find all their, their needs for love, their ultimate need for love. They try to find that in their children. And then what does that produce? If their children becomes their functional gods, what happens to that parent? Well, maybe they, for instance, become way too overprotective. They cannot bear the thought that anything would happen to their kids, so they begin to crush their children. They put so many boundaries around them, they're so overprotective that their children are smothered and they're crying out for a breath of fresh air. That sometimes happens. Or the children cannot bear the weight of trying to, 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 to give their parents the love that the parents need. Children cannot bear that weight. And so the parents are crushing them with their need for love. They're crushing them with their overprotectiveness. And through all of this is because the parents have made the children their ultimate treasure, focused entirely on them, made the children the functional gods, but children cannot be our gods. This is why Jesus says those words which we often misunderstand when he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, is Jesus saying you should hate your kids? Not in that sense, no. What Jesus is saying is your heart can only have one ultimate allegiance. Everything else, even your wife and kids, must come below Jesus. Now, is Jesus being mean, talking like this? Is he, I don't know, he's trying to ruin your life? No. Again, he's a good king. And the only way you'll ever be a truly loving and great parent is when Jesus is the ultimate king of the family. And under Jesus, then, you have your wife and your children so that your ultimate need for love as a parent can come from God and from him and all he's done for you through Jesus Christ. He meets that ultimate need for love. So now you're free to love your kids and you don't have to place an unreasonable expectation of love upon them. Same with overprotectiveness. You realize that there's only one person who grants life and takes life and that's God himself. You and I cannot control that. And if Jesus is in your ultimate allegiance, you can bow the knee to him and say, Jesus, I don't always understand all your ways, but I believe in the resurrection of the dead. I believe in the life to come. I believe you're a good master. And even if you should take my kids from me, which God forbid it should ever happen, I will still place them into your hands for what else can I even do anyways? And you can be releasing that anxiety to God and giving your kids into his care only he, can, only he can protect them anyways. You have no protection over that. And so then you can find a freedom from anxiety, committing your kids to his keeping and to his care, even as you are wise about the decisions you make for them. Jesus is such a good master. He wants to free you who are parents from unnecessary anxiety and from crushing your own kids with your own anxiety and the expectations that it can come out on with your children. Or think about career success. It's the same thing here. 
As Christians, we're called to work hard in our jobs. Achievement is a good thing, not a bad thing. But if the chief thing that you live for is to be respected, to be at the top of your field so everyone knows it, and to be super successful, if that is the treasure that is in your life. The thing that you focus on, the God that you serve, oh boy, you're going to fill with perpetual anxiety and fear. Because here's what will happen. As you're climbing the ladder, you'll always fear what your boss thinks of you. You're not going to relate to your boss properly about your work because it's getting at your anxiety. You will not be able to handle any criticism that you may receive as you're growing in your job and in your career because that criticism will strike at the core of your identity. And then if and when you do succeed, let's say you do get to the top, you'll never be happy You'll always be filled with anxiety because you're always going to fear that someone's going to come and take your position. You're always going to have to fear that you're going to maintain that spot because someone, you might drop yourself off of that pedestal. You'll never be able to really be happy for other people or help them because what if they overtake you? But here's the thing. If Jesus and these words today are at the center, if you're living, seeking first His kingdom, if you're focusing in on him, if he is your God, then here's the thing. You've already got all the success you could possibly want. You're son or daughter of the king. You've got a kingdom coming your way. You've got an inheritance coming your way that is so glorious and so vast you can't even count it. And so what that does is it frees you. Now you're free. You can work hard to achieve. Work hard not because it's basing in your identity, but to work hard for God because your position is secure. You're not trying to build your identity on your job and your career success. So now you can handle criticism. Basically you can say, okay, yeah, I'm not perfect. I need to grow in that area. But it's not the core of your identity. Not only that, you can build others up. People who are beneath you on the job level, whatever that is, you can say, I want to help you and I want to celebrate your success because I want to make you great because my identity is not tied to exactly my position. And if you do succeed, you can rejoice and you can give thanks to God, realizing that he gave you it anyways and that all things eventually come to an end. So friends, this is our good and loving master. Jesus calls us to make good and wise kingdom-informed decisions. He wants us to store up treasures in heaven, not on earth, because these things are profoundly insecure. He wants to do that because what you focus on, whatever you focus on, it's going to fill you with light or darkness. And whatever you focus on is also going to give birth to the God that you will serve. And there is only one God who is perfectly secure who will never ultimately let you down, even if in this life you feel like he has, who one day will give you all the things you've dreamt for, all the things that you've wanted, and will give you a security which nothing can be taken, it cannot never be taken away. There's only one master who can do that, and his name is Jesus Christ. Make him your God. Bow the knee to him and serve him alone. Let's take a moment right now and just pray that the Spirit would take anything we've talked about today, <clears throat> and that he would apply it to our hearts. I don't know how he will do it. He'll do it far more effectively than I will. But let's just take a minute with some quiet music maybe playing in the background and ask the Spirit to search your heart about what he wants to speak to you about today. And then we'll sing of his great love, which always remains, which is eternal, which is secure for us. Let's spend a moment in silent prayer and reflection. Um, just as we take some time to be silent and reflect them, um, 